And if you'll keep those Bibles open and flip over to your Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Our sermon text this morning comes from uh, this sixth chapter, uh, verses 1 through 23. 2 Kings chapter 6. Reading verses 1 through 23, if you're using a pew Bible, that starts on page 395. Before we even read our text, let me go ahead and kind of set our minds to what is going to be discussed this morning, because what we see here in these 23 verses is four supernatural miracles that are done by the power of our God. And we don't need to try to you know, rationalize what miracles are. You know, one of the, the perks of being a Presbyterian minister is that it's not surprising to anyone when they walk into my office and they see 500, 600 books. We know that we, uh, in the Reformed theology world, we like to be logical people. We like to be well-read people. We like to be theologically robust, uh, and yet the downside of that is that sometimes we try to rationalize the supernatural. Um, and, and we need to understand that our confession gives the ability for our God to uh, move against what might seem rational to our minds. The confession actually says that our God has naturally ordered His creation, and yet at any time He pleases, He might work through that, above that, below that, or even against that. And so we don't need to rationalize what's happened here. We need to just simply uh, understand that our God is a supernatural God. He has the right when He desires to to work through miracles, and we will see four here before us as He shows us not only His power and His faithfulness, but also to preserve and protect uh, His people, the nation of Israel. Anytime I come across miracles within the Bible, especially the, the conversations of angels that we'll see here uh, in our text, I'm always reminded of Dr. Doug Kelly's famous line, uh, we are not reformed deists. We do not believe in a big God who just sits back and watches the world. We believe in a big God, a sovereign God who works in the daily operations, in the sustaining graces of His creation for the glory and the growth and the preservation of His people, His kingdom. And so with that in mind, understanding that our God is a God of angel armies, a God who works very supernaturally. Let us hear from God's Word. Again, reading uh, from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log. And let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. Uh, so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was failing a log, 
his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in, into the river and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. And once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took uh, counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not go or pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to that place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told to him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance to the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go back to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on the raids into the land of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, like I mentioned before we even read our text, there's four miracles that we need to pay careful attention to because always miracles are teaching us something about God and something about ourselves. And the first one we see is there in verses 1 through 7 with the miracle of the floating axe head. If you look back at verse 6, we see this man who was chopping down a tree so that he might build a school for the prophets. Here it is that we have something like a seminary being established where these prophets would come to discern and to teach and to proclaim the words of God. 
And Elisha, of course, being the great prophet amongst them, is something of a father figure to them. And so they desire to build a bigger campus, if you will, if we were to put it in our own terms, to build a bigger school so that they might teach, so that they might be uh, growing as a people, and so that Elisha might even dwell with them there to teach them the ways of the prophets. And, And as they were cutting these logs here at the Jordan, as one was failing a log, cutting down a log, his axe head falls into the water, And he goes immediately to Elisha, Alas, my master, talking about his axe head is now in the river, it was borrowed. And then we see the interaction there, don't we, in verse 6, between Elisha and this young man who is training to be a prophet. He shows him exactly where it fell there in the Jordan River. And then Elisha does something pretty Unique, he throws this stick into the water and now the iron, the the axe head, begins to float. Now again, this miracle is a miracle. Iron does not float in water. But the Lord in His power is reversing the, the nature of gravity. He is reversing the natural order of things where iron would sink into the water. And it's also that we might learn a lesson about His sovereignty, about His provision, about His faithfulness to His people. Because here it is that these men who are chopping down these trees to build this new seminary of sorts, to build this bigger school, they are operating for the kingdom of God. They are laboring uh, for the Lord. And we see Him, this young prophet, this young man, wanting to provide, wanting to do a good work for his God, wanting to do a good work for his father in the faith, Elisha. And so in verse 5, as this axe head falls into the water and he begins to cry out to the prophet, he has very good intentions. Lord, wasn't I working for the Master? Master, wasn't I working for the Lord? Even worse... I have borrowed this axe. We all know something of allowing someone to borrow them, right? Uh, Men, as you let your neighbors borrow your tools, they, they never come back in the same working condition as they ought. We understand something of that. It's, it, it's pretty frustrating, isn't it? Uh, if you even get it back at all. Uh, and, and that's something that is wrestling around with this young prophet's mind. Not only did I have all intentions on returning the axe, not only did I have all intentions on returning the axe as I borrowed it, but I had all these intentions to work for the good of my Lord, to work for the good of my master, Elisha. And, and isn't that somewhat often the case for us? That as Christians, we're commanded by our God to work for Him. Even in the context of the local church, we are called and and even commissioned, you might say, to labor for the kingdom uh, here in the visible church that we belong to, First Presbyterian. We, We have this call to labor for each other, to labor for our Lord, to labor for our leadership here within our church, the elders. 
And how often does it seem like when we're trying to labor for the kingdom of Christ that that something goes off the rails? Something happens. It might not be a physical tool that is breaking, but we find ourselves at a desperate point asking the question in this standstill of sorts, Lord, wasn't I doing a good thing? Didn't I have good intentions? And in times of this, what are we to do? Well, we are to do exactly what this young prophet did. He went immediately to Elisha. He went immediately to the the chief prophet, you might say. And, And in a like manner, we are to go to our chief prophet, who of course is not the elders, even though of course it would be good for you to go and say, listen, I had good intentions, but the wheels have fallen off the cart, so to speak. My axe head has flown off the handle. But beyond that, we are to go to our Lord in that honesty as well. Lord, didn't I I desire to do good things for you? Didn't I even use the the talents, the gifts that that I have borrowed from you? I had these, these grand plans to serve the Master, to serve the kingdom, and it seems as if I'm hopeless and desperate because I had these well-intended actions, and yet I stand here with broken equipment. Well, of course, if we're honest with ourselves, even our best talents and our greatest gifts are, are tainted by sin. You might call them broken by nature. We have destroyed and, and we have polluted our, our great intentions with our own sinfulness, and, and oftentimes the consequence of that sinfulness even in our own hearts is that we have uh, desperate moments of, of, of being still but wanting to be used by God. And so we come to Christ just as this young prophet went to Elisha and we are honest with those things and we know because here's what the miracle is teaching us that, that God in His sovereignty and His faithfulness to the kingdom of God can raise up the iron axe head contrary to its nature. He can raise it up to the surface of the water. He can cause it to float. Meaning He can use even tainted sinful people like us and He can use us for the kingdom. You know, something of this happens with, with John Bunyan, the great Baptist Puritan. You know, he's preaching the gospel to many, uh, if not thousands of people, each and every day in 1661. And if you know something about that year in, in, in European history, you know that, that that is when it was outlawed that you would preach uh, in secret especially uh, the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it wasn't the state religion, wasn't the national religion. And so he is thrown into prison. He sits there 12 years. And of course, you can imagine John Bunyan's thoughts, right? Lord, did not desire good things for the kingdom. Wasn't I doing good things for your fame and your glory? I was preaching the gospel of Christ. And yet here I am in prison. My axe head has has flown off the handle. Things have gone sideways for me. Well, even in that moment where John Bunyan thought things were going sideways, it's there in prison 
for those 12 years that he writes Pilgrim's Progress, a book that is the bestseller right behind the Bible. It sold more copies than any other human written book teaching us about how to live as as Christians, how to pilgrim well. And, And yet, the Lord raises up the axe head even more. Not only does He show His faithfulness in these sideways years of John Bunyan sitting in prison, but He also releases John Bunyan, and John Bunyan says, I will take even this axe head that you have caused to float, and I will preach again even though he had already suffered for the kingdom. And so the Lord is able to raise the axe head as we seek to to work for his goodness, his glory, his, his kingdom. And that's the first miracle that we need to see, God allowing or God enabling the axe head to float. But the second one we need to see is this supernatural discernment. I guess that's the best way to say it, this the supernatural discernment that the prophet Elisha uh, receives from the hand of the Lord so that he might tell the king of Israel where not to go so that his life may be preserved. You see it here as the king of Syria, as he's warring against Israel in verse 8, he takes counsel with his servants. We need to scratch at that idea of servant there for a moment. The original Hebrew has something more than just a, a lowly servant it, is something like his, maybe his greatest counsel, his most trusted servants, you might say. And even to them, he doesn't really even tell them exactly where he is going to camp. You see how vague the words are, right? At such and such place, there I shall camp. So even amongst his most trusted circle of people, he's saying, I'm not even going to tell them where I'm going. But I'm going to personally lead my army to this camp of my choosing. And there I'm going to wait on the king of Israel so that I might put him to death and finally win this war. But you notice there in verse 9, even the most trusted counselors of the king doesn't know where the camp is, but the man of God does. The man of God sends word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not go to this place. Notice, the, the, specific, you know, the, the specific nature of, of what Elisha is, is, is saying. Don't go to that place, king. The, the king of Syria speaks in very general terms. I'm going to go to so-and-so place. Elisha, the man of God, speaks in specifics. Don't go to that place, king of Israel, because there you will be put to death by the Syrians who are going there. And therefore, it says in verse 10 that the king of Israel does not go there, heeding the warning, if you will, of the prophet Elisha. It actually implies here that Elisha tells him of this bodily harm that is being attempted upon him repeated times, more than once or twice, it says at the end of verse 10. And there's several things I think we need to uh, heed here or learn here, uh, but, but one of the most prominent things I think we need to understand is that it is fitting sometimes for the people of God, especially the, those who are called to, to preach and teach and to proclaim the Word of God, I'm talking about elders within the church, to speak to 
civil authorities warning them of the danger that awaits them uh, as they uh, rage against those who are led by worldly powers, Satan himself, evil. And one of the things that you might understand here, what's implied here within our text in, in verses 8 through 10, and then further on in verses 11 through uh, 12, uh, as the king of Syria begins to try to capture Elisha, is that not only is Elisha speaking on behalf of the Lord about bodily harm, but he is talking about a, a, maybe this idea of spiritual warfare. He, he's talking about the, the battle that, that rages on against the, the people of God, the nation of Israel, by, by sheer evil and wickedness that seeks to put them away. It's not a coincidence in verse 8 that it's, that it's called this warring. It's this constant pressure of, of, of disdain, of, of hate. It's this constant pressure of a desire on, on behalf of the Syrians to, to put an end to the people of God. It goes much more than just a geographic, historical battle, but it's a... It's a war between the dominion of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. And it's fitting. It's fitting for the prophet not to only speak to this physical harm that is in front of the king of Israel, but this spiritual dilemma, this spiritual warfare that exists behind the scenes, if you will. The, the battle, the spiritual battle that's raging against God and His people and His gospel. Now we know something about the king and we know something about uh, the nation of Israel. We know something about the king of Syria because of context. We, we know that Jehoram, the, the king of Israel, is a wicked king. We actually learn that from chapter 3 of this book in verse 1, that Jehoram is the son of King Ahab. And, and yes, Jehoram might be a little bit better than King Ahab, but he's, he still does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He destroys the, the, the idols of Baal, but he is still guilty of idolatry. He actually takes for himself the idols of his mother and not his father. Nevertheless, what we see is a sinful king of Israel. We see a sinful king of Syria. We see unbelieving political powers that are before us. And so when Elisha speaks the words of God to speak of this physical harm, Jehoram being a self-centered and sinful man takes heed to that advice. And yet he ignores the spiritual realm in which Elisha speaks. It's, it's here in our verses this morning that that we must understand that on, on occasion it is good for the church to speak to the government not only to talk about physical matters, but to talk about spiritual matters. Even our confession gives us the opportunity to do this. You know, our foundational document is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's there in the back of your hymn book if you're ever uh, curious enough to read it. 
uh, it's there in the back of your hymn book, and it tells us that there is this separation, if you will, of church and state. I know that that, uh, that language has a lot of luggage uh, uh, attached to it in our, in our nation, but, but it essentially tells us in our confession that the government should be, yes, under the authority of God, because they have been given that, uh, that position of power by God, but they are to have these roles, and the church is to have these roles, and they are not to intermingle together. The church is to do the church, and the government is to do the government. But at special times, it says, the church must speak of the war that exists behind the scenes. And of course, as you see the political chaos in our country, as you see the cultural sin of our country, it would be right and it would be good for the church to speak. And it would be right and it would be good for the leaders of our country to heed the words of the church that they would, as God commands, call evil evil and good good and that they would reinforce what God has created and enabled and call it very good. And yet it seems as if like the king of Syria and like the king of Israel, they have heard those things that benefit them, but they have ignored the, the deep details of the spiritual realm in which the church speaks. And you say, well, Matt, if they're, going to, if they're just going to ignore what the church says, should we keep speaking? Will there be a time, and beloved, I think we've reached a time where where the civil government will not endure sound doctrine, as the Apostle Paul says. But the people of God must simply be faithful. It's not that Elisha does not know, because he has this supernatural discernment, that the king of Israel and the king of Syria will, will respond positively to his, to his message. They, he knows simply that they won't. But he must be faithful to his God, and he must tell them what God has commanded for him to tell. And so as, as, as Elisha speaks to Jehoram, even later on as he speaks to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he, he speaks under the authority of God, and they harden their hearts against the authority of God. But you understand the spiritual discernment, the supernatural spiritual discernment in which Elisha possesses. But then also you see... We need to think about these verses, verses 13 through 17, as Elisha prays for the the eyes of his servant to be opened so that he might see the angelic armies that surround them. Admittedly, this is a, a, a great picture of God's provision, a great picture of God's faithfulness and God's protection to His people as as the young servant wakes up in the morning, as he looks around uh, in uh, this, this nation or this city of Dothan, he sees all these great Syrian military men. He sees the best of the best soldiers that the Syrian army possesses. He sees the horses and the, and the chariots. It's a picture of power, isn't it? It's a picture of intimidation. It's a picture in, in human terms of, of hopelessness. And isn't that hopelessness exactly what the servant begins to, 
begins to experience or feel. As he looks about and he sees all this, he cries out to Elisha, his master, what shall we do? It's a a desperate moment. And Elisha speaks very clearly to this young believer. He says simply, do not be afraid. Or maybe your translation of God's Word says, do not fear. That's a good word for us in times of what seems to be hopelessness. Do not fear. Why should we not fear? Well, Isaiah 41.10 tells us that we should not fear, that we should not be dismayed. Why? Because I am with you, the Lord says, and I am your God, He reminds us. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see what the Lord is promising there in Isaiah 41? Just as I am righteous, so I am your protector. And you know, you know something about, you understand something about the righteousness of God, right? He cannot not be righteous. And therefore, what, what the Lord, our God Almighty, is saying is that just as I can't not be righteous, I can't not protect you. I must do it to show you my faithfulness, to show you my my calm heart that ought to calm your heart. And so to to show the, the servant here why he should not fear, why he should not be afraid, Elisha there in verse 17 prays, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Here it is. Can you imagine the scene? The young servant wakes up from the, from the deep sleep of the night. He looks about, he clears his eyes, he rubs the sleep out of his eyes, and he sees the mighty Syrian army. And then his spiritual eyes are open, and he sees the angelic hosts. And you thought the Syrian chariots and the Syrian soldiers and the Syrian horses were intimidating. Think about God's army. Think about this angelic army that is so bright and and full of wrath because our Lord is full of wrath against evil. It's on fire because our God is a consuming fire. Can you imagine now the hopefulness in which the servant feels? It's this hopefulness that despite what may be considered hopeless on earthly standards, now is His victory in Christ's standards. And you think about the, the ministry of the angels. I, want to, I know I'm short on time, but I want to think about the, the ministry of the angels for the people of God. Of course, the Greek word tells us the first priority or, or the first function of the angels. They're simply messengers. God sends them as messengers. You think about the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and the shepherds. All of these people are told the good news of great joy about Christ's birth through, through the messengers, the angels of heaven. But then, rightly, John Calvin says that the, that the second angelic function is the protection of the believers. Here's what he writes. The angels are administrators of God's benefits towards us 
For this reason, Scriptures recall that they keep vigil for our safety, take upon themselves our defense, direct our ways, and take care that some harm may not befall us. Of course, this is what David has in mind in Psalm 34. The context of that song is David fleeing his country because Saul is seeking to put him to death. Saul is raging against him. And in this psalm, David, as he hides in the cleft of the rock, says that the angels of the Lord surround those who fear Him. And ultimately, He will have His deliverance because of the action of this angelic encampment. And and David's not speaking in hyperbole. And he's not speaking in something that we can rationalize, you might remember. But, But God in His goodness surrounds David with his angels. God with his goodness and his provision and his faithfulness and his sustaining mercies surround Elisha and his servant with the angelic hosts. Another Puritan, Isaac Ambrose, you might not be as familiar with his name. He describes the angel army here in 2 Kings 6 as watchful sentinels and safe convoys who protect those who fear God until they reach heaven. That's what Elisha is experiencing here. And and, and you know something about how this plays out, don't you? That we might not see the angels that surround us, but God has so promised that the angels will encamp around us so that we might be protected from all harm and all evil. In fact, as John Calvin continues, he says that these angels that God sends to us will fight against the devil and all of our enemies, and when necessary, they will be full of fiery wrath so that they might carry out God's vengeance against those who harm us. It's a mighty God, a supernatural God that we serve, that He would even send the the legions, the hosts, and the armies of the angels Uh, to protect His people. And then lastly, verses 18-23, through we see this last miracle where God blinds the Syrian army. Very quickly, it's the Syrians who come and attack, and yet the Lord, through the prayers of Elisha, blinds the eyes of the Syrian army so that they might not see properly. And so Elisha tells them, this isn't the country that you're looking for. This isn't the city. I'm not the person that you're looking for. Let me take you there. And so blindly they follow, right? And they find themselves there in Samaria in the very capital of the nation of Israel. Surrounded by the the Israelite army. Surrounded by the king and and his captains surrounded by the Lord's people. And as they are surrounded by the Lord's people, Elisha prays again, Lord, open their eyes so that they might see. And you can imagine the panic, the sheer panic. As the Syrian armies look up and they see the enemies that have surrounded them, that hopeless situation that the servant of Elisha felt is the hopelessness in which the Syrians feel at this moment. And the king Jehoram asks Elijah, Elisha, should I kill him? And Elisha kind of interestingly says, no, don't kill them. But set a feast before them. 
Let them eat and let them drink. And then you send them back to their master. You send them back to Syria. And and why is this the case? That's how I want to end our time together. Why is this the case? Well, Matthew Henry says that Elisha treats these even enemy armies exactly the way that Proverbs chapter 25 tells us. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Meaning, Matthew Henry says, Elisha acts in such a way, commands Jehoram not to kill him, kill them, but to lay out a feast before them and let them eat and drink and then send them back to Syria so that they will see the goodness and the grace of the God of Israel. That maybe, just maybe, this will be the means in which the enemies are reconciled not only to the nation of Israel, but also to their God. But that their self-denial no, by no means makes them a loser, Matthew Henry says. Because what is true here is true today. That vengeance is mine, saith, saith the Lord of hosts. Our Lord says that He will be the one who conquers enemy armies. That He will be the one who vindicates His people. That He will be the one to destroy the works of Satan and all of His dominions. Therefore, our job is to simply heap upon them coals of fire on their heads. Show them the goodness, the mercy of God. Let the reward of the Lord be ours and the judgment of the Lord be theirs. And how do we know that the judgment of the Lord will be theirs? Because God has already done it. In the person and the work of Jesus Christ, He has already vindicated His people. He has already destroyed the works of the devil. And so just as we see Christ, Him crucified, buried, and then resurrected and ascended, just as we see Him seated at the right hand of God upon the throne in heaven, all things under His feet, We see Him high and lifted up. His enemies, His footstool. We also see our victory as well. And therefore, we are about the Father's business. And we leave the judgment of the Lord against His enemies to His hands so that we might be found faithful and so that our enemies might be destroyed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for this Your Word. And we know, O Lord, that we have spent much time in it this morning. And yet... These miracles have something to teach us. And so, Father, we pray that you would use these messages, these these points, uh, these illustrations through these miracles to remind us that you are always with us, that we might not be dismayed, that your angels encamp around us, that you will use us for your glory, and you will bring about the consummation of our victory. All things uh, that are evil in this world will one day be no longer. And so, Lord, let us labor faithfully until that day, and we pray that that day would not tarry, for we long to be glorified, and we long to be in the new heavens and the new earth, so that we might worship and rest in Thee all the days of eternity. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.